Please remain standing with me and pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would come and that you would enliven the words of Scripture for us this morning. May you root them deep in our hearts and produce within us a crop of life and joy and peace for now and for the age to come. And so take up my weakness and make it your strength. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope you enjoy the people beside you uh, because you might be getting a little closer to them than you want to be. Well, praise God. And, and, and Merry Fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves now uh, with Merry Christmases and Merry Christmas Eve and all that. Uh, let's, let's enjoy this last Sunday of Advent for at least a few more hours before we move on. For the last three Sundays, we have heard in the voice of Isaiah the prophet the fervent and at times impatient longing for God to come down and save that characterizes the season of Advent so well. In chapter 64, Isaiah is at the edge of hope. He clearly sees that the people of God have hardened their hearts so much so that there is no one to be found who can even take notice of God. No one can be roused to be bothered by him. A great reversal is needed in order for the people of God to be saved. And Isaiah knows that nothing short of God rending the heavens and coming down with unrestrained zeal and might and unrestrained tenderness and compassion will reverse the destiny of such hardened hearts. In chapter 40, Of Isaiah's prophecy, God responds with a message of comfort, declaring his intention to redeem, forgive, and restore. He will bring about a great reversal when he returns. And Isaiah's call for God to rend the heavens and come down is met with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight crooked paths for our God. His desire for God to unrestrain his might and his zeal is answered with the image ultimately of Jesus as the divine warrior king returning victorious from battle, carrying in his arms you and I, his people, as the spoils of war. And his call for God to unrestrain his tenderness and compassion is met with the image ultimately again of Jesus, but now as the good shepherd who cares for, leads, gathers up, and carries his people in his strong yet tender arms. And then last week in Isaiah 65, God offers a glimpse of the consummation of the great reversal that he brings when he returns. New heavens and a new earth. A new Jerusalem and God's people made new. True human flourishing. True creational flourishing abounding across every square inch of planet earth. The reversal that God brings will be greater than we can imagine. All sorrow will be banished and joy will inhabit our lives forever. All pain will be extinguished and gladness will burn inside each of us eternally. Death will be no more and true life will reign. And the greatest reversal of all is that, as we looked at last week, God's wrath against us will be answered and replaced by his delight. He will find joy and gladness in us. 
This is the great reversal that all human hearts long for, for the kingdom of God, for their creator's voice to say, well done, you make me happy. For our lives to be transformed by loving grace into a renewed humanity in whom God finds his happiness and joy. Our gospel lesson this morning from Luke chapter 1 plays an important and central role in this great story of reversal that God authors in human history and reveals to us across the pages of Holy Scripture. God is on the move. A small tear in the heavens is opening. God is coming down. And along with Mary, we receive a clue that the God of great and surprising reversals is at work again in verse 36 when the angel Gabriel says to her, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. I love it. I almost focused only on that. Her who was called barren. If she was a music artist, she'd be known as the woman formerly known as barren. God is on the move, transforming death into life, barrenness into fertility. Yet Elizabeth's story does not stand at the center of God's great reversal. Her story of reversal, very personal story of reversal, has a key part to play, a supporting role, like the role her gestating son John will play in God's great reversal story. Her miraculous conception in her old age at the end of decades of barrenness, became a beacon for Mary, revealing that the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, who breathed new life into Sarah's old and barren womb so long ago, her God, Mary's God, was indeed on the move again to reverse what sin and death had twisted and destroyed. When Mary heard the angel Gabriel's declaration that Her cousin Elizabeth was six months pregnant with a son. She must have felt different. Similar to how C.S. Lewis describes the way Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy felt in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when they heard Beaver report that Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. Lewis tells us that at that name, at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Children, you recently felt that? When Mary heard this rapturous news about Elizabeth, she must have suddenly felt an abiding confidence and belief that the unbelievable word of God that she had just heard from Gabriel, that as a virgin she would conceive by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would sit atop the throne of David that would last forever. We just heard from 2 Samuel. She must have felt such an abiding confidence and belief in God's word at just the the mere mention of Elizabeth's miraculous reversal because she immediately entrusts herself to the will of God completely and wholly 
in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the bondservant. I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What remarkable words. I don't know how many it is in English. I'm not going to count right now. It's 10 in the Greek. A remarkable little statement, but so profound, simple but deep. It is this straightforward yet profound statement of commitment and trust from the Blessed Virgin Mary that God used as catalyst to bring about the greatest true story of reversal ever known through her son, Jesus. You see, Mary's yes to God becomes a means of undoing Eve's no to him in the garden. Mary's yes to God becomes a means of undoing Eve's no to him in the garden. And this is how the church has read this passage and Mary's role from the very beginning. If Jesus is the second Adam, a new Adam, then they looked at Mary and said, there's the second Eve. There's the new Eve, undoing what the first Eve had done. Eve's disobedience along with Adam became the fulcrum on which all of mankind turned away from God. Yet Mary's obedience becomes the fulcrum on which God makes a way for mankind to return to him through her son, through Jesus. In both Genesis chapter 3 and Luke chapter 1, Eve's disobedience and Mary's obedience hinges on whether one can entrust themselves to God rather than trusting in themselves. It hinges on whether one can entrust themselves to God rather than trusting in themselves. And this matter of entrusting ourselves to God is key to our own participation in the story of reversal that God is writing in our own lives. In the lives of our families, in the lives of those within this city. And the angel Gabriel's encounter with the Blessed Virgin Mary yields two key ingredients to entrusting ourselves to God as Mary did. And so this is our final exhortation here in Advent before we enter into this season of revelry and feasting during Christmas tide. Here's those two ingredients. Joy. Joy in the presence of God. Memory. Memory in his life-giving work of reversal. So let's look there first at joy. Joy in God's presence. And if we were to put kind of a command to this, it's simply rejoice. Rejoice. Look at verse 28 of chapter 1, if you have your text open. And he, that's Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The word translated greetings here certainly has that meaning. However, Luke uses the word as it is often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as a summons. Rejoice! Be glad! Just like Zephaniah does in chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, Shout for joy, daughter Jerusalem. Shout for joy. And what is the cause for such joy? The Lord is with you. He's with you, Mary. Shout for joy. Of course, she's like, what the heck? (laughs) What's happening here? What kind of greeting is this? This is exactly what 
Zephaniah proclaims to the people there in verse 15 of his prophecy, that the king of Israel, the Lord, he is in your midst. So shout for joy. The joy that Gabriel calls Mary to express is a result of God's grace, his favor, freely given regardless of worth or status, regardless of how old she was. What is she, 13, 14, 15 years old? God gave his favor to Mary, who had no claim to worthy status, raised her up from a position of lowliness, and chose her to have a central role in the greatest true story of reversal this world will ever know. And Mary gives voice to that in the Magnificat. But notice that this joy does not permit fear to have a lasting presence in Mary, nor should it in us. Listen to verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not fear, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Joy in God's presence with us does not permit fear concerning what we lack. Because you can imagine what would be going on through Mary's mind at that moment when the angel Gabriel says to her, Do not fear. Because, holy, what in the world? God is with me? I mean, I would be thinking lots of things, lots of my inadequacies, my sins, my shortcomings, my, my left toe, you know, Lord, I'm not perfect. How is this possible that you're with me? Of course I'm afraid. But God's grace always triumphs over our lacks. And that's what he brings, his favor, his grace. But we must admit that that nagging voice of lacking fear will seek to enter in and steal our joy in such moments. And we can hear its presence in the life of someone like Gideon when, like Mary, an angel declares to him, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And if you know that passage, you notice this really interesting back and forth between Gideon and the angel of the Lord who, who tells him that the Lord is with him and now he's a mighty man of valor. He didn't think he was. He certainly wasn't by any human standards, but because the Lord's presence with him, is, the Lord's presence makes him such. But Gideon throws back fear. And his first accusation is fear is a lack in God. Where have you been? How can I trust you to do something now? It's been so long since you led the people of Israel out from Egypt. Where are you at in these days? And the angel of the Lord simply responds to him by doubling down and restating the same thing, just in different words. Go in this your strength. Go in this your might and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Am I not with you? Go. Of course, then Gideon, still gripped in fear because of lacks that he perceives in the situation, turns now internally. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And then the angel of the Lord, right back, same thing. But I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. Mary. She's far better than Gideon. <laughs> she cuts right through it. When the angel says, do not fear, she does not fear. But please know that those fears are in each of us. 
that sense of accusing accusation of God and what lacks in him or what lacks in us. You see, we cannot entrust ourselves to God as Mary does in verse 38 if we are focused on what we believe we lack or on a false picture of God as one who deprives us of that which is truly fulfilling, who cannot supply what we lack. And our ancient serpentine enemy will seek to create that perception of a lack in us or either a lack in God or both. And this is certainly what he does for Eve in the garden. Did God really say? She invites or he invites Eve to make an assessment of what God had previously told them or told Adam and Adam should have been relaying it to her. Did God really say? You will not surely die. For God knows. He's keeping something back from you. He's lacking. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And the serpent promises Eve, elevated, even transcendent, standing in the garden, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And his promise presents God as withholding blessing from Eve and not concerned with her welfare or whether or not she is able to live a fulfilled life. And whatever joy Eve had in God is gone now. You see how fear, prompted by a perceived lack, takes away such joy? She is now only focused on that which she does not have. And that which God does not provide for her, at least how she sees it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She said no to God, no to his provision of the garden. I want what I want, and I want it now. Fear driving such self-centeredness in Eve is met by Mary, who seems to be, in all recounts, just humble as humble can be and receives God's word. Yes, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. In contrast to such fear, true joy arises from the simple acceptance of God's free grace and presence as that which supplies every need and answers every desire. Such joy leads to, leads to one leads one to gladly entrust their life to God. What enables Mary to entrust her life totally to God? Joy. Joy in God, a self-sufficient God, who is sufficient for all my needs. Joy. So rejoice, Christ Church. The Lord is with you. The second key ingredient to entrusting ourselves to God, as Mary did, is to cultivate a collective memory of his life-giving work. And if we were to put this into an imperative, we would just say recount or remember. Notice there that Gabriel recounts the work of God in the life of Elizabeth. And this news motivates Mary to entrust herself to God completely. Sometimes it is hard to see God's favor or his work in our own lives, is it not? At these times, we need to hear the ways that God has worked and is working in the lives of others in order to motivate us 
to entrust ourselves to God's will. Gabriel's recounting to Mary of God's work in Elizabeth's life stands in a long line of examples throughout the scriptures and of the history of God's people where they cultivate a collective memory of God's action in this world and in their lives that brought about great reversals. You think about texts like Deuteronomy 26. My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down into Egypt, was enslaved, but God brought him out, led us through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into a land of promise. Or even Mary's own Magnificat, just a few verses later after our reading where she recounts the reversal stories of Israel leading up to her own reversal story. Think of our creeds. In many ways, these are stories. God the creator, Christ the redeemer, the spirit, the profound and powerful enlivener of our hearts and souls, the church, God's vehicle of grace in this world. Think of the Christian calendar that we're in the middle of every year tells us the stories of reversal, the greatest story of reversal over and over again, cultivating within us this collective memory. Wendell Berry contends that the work of cultivating local culture is in part the result of maintaining and passing down a collection of memories which enrich our lives and the lives of each succeeding generation. He writes, when a community loses its memory, its members no longer know one another. How can they know one another if they have forgotten or have never learned one another's stories? If they do not know one another's stories, how can they know whether or not to trust one another? People who do not trust one another do not help one another, and moreover, they fear each other. I think this is an apt description of what happens when we fail to recount the stories of God at work in our lives and in the lives of those who have gone before us in Christ. How can we entrust our present and future lives to God like Mary does if we have no memory? Whether personal or collective of his faithfulness, no testimony of his loving kindness and his redeeming power at work in our lives or the lives of others like Mary had with Elizabeth or like she had received her entire life as a girl in Israel hearing again and again the stories of God's grace and redemption. This is what makes reading and teaching the scriptures so essential to the life of the church. This is what makes recounting the lives of the saints so important to our walk with God. This is why it's so significant that we find time together to testify to one another about God's grace at work transforming our lives. Those stories are reversal in each one of us. So as we come to the end of Advent and enter into Christmas tide, we must be about the work of cultivating a robust collective memory, a robust ministry of recollection, of recounting the stories of God's grace, then it will become more difficult for us and for our children, become less difficult for us and our children to entrust our lives completely to the will of God. So two things to walk away this morning as we look to Mary and her example. As you've heard from this pulpit in years past from Father Ben, she is the prototype disciple. Shall we look to her? She's the first Christ bearer. 
So we look to her example, and what do we see here in this passage? We see that we must rejoice. Because through Mary, Emmanuel has come. God is with us. He is with you. You are favored. You are graced. Do not live in fear, but allow the joy of God's presence to swallow up such fear. Rejoice. Come back tonight, 5 and 7 p.m. (laughs) To do just that. Rejoice. And then recount. Begin by telling and retelling over and over again the story of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the story of her son. How God freely poured out his favor on her life and used her yes to his will to bring about the greatest reversal story known to man and in your life. Recount. Tell the story. And don't stop with Mary's. Don't stop with Jesus. Tell the story of everyone who has been transformed by God's grace. Tell it to yourself. Tell it to your children. Build that soil of this culture here. Rejoice and recount so that we might entrust our lives wholly to God as Mary did. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.